0: Hi. This is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page.
1: Hi everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick.
2: Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast. And our regular panellist Prudence Deer is sitting out today's show being a very responsible citizen, staying home, but tuned in and listening to every word So, hello Prudence. But those of us who live within five kilometres are here in the studio. So it's welcome back to the microphone, Miss Diagnosis. Miss Diagnosis, how is life on the wards for a junior doctor at the moment?
3: Good morning, Dr Nick. It's an interesting time during lockdown um, as a hospital doctor because you have this really strange pattern where as soon as lockdown is announced, the emergency room almost kind of quietens down, sort of touch wood. We never say quiet when we're in the emergency department. It's a bit of a uh, sort of an unlucky word to say because it guarantees that you're going to have three cat ones turn through the door as soon as you say the word quiet. But it, it but does do you mean, settle you, down. Do you
2: mean you've actually had time to up the caffeine levels and do the crossword?
3: But not so much do the crossword, Dr Nick, but certainly time to pop down to um, our lovely Night Fix coffee van that arrives at one o'clock in the morning and get a latte.
2: And time to come to Triple R Studio, so it's lovely to have you in the studio, on the microphone as well, and behind the panel doing all the fantastic stuff with knobs and buttons and looking after us. We've got Panel Beater. Good morning, Panel Beater.
0: Good morning, both of you. Good to see you. How's it going? It's going very well, although I was having a, a bit of an um, unload, as were Bron and uh, Farm before. This lockdown seems to be a bit tougher than some of the others. Yeah, so how's it going with your students and the work and that sort of stuff? Oh, well, that's interesting because the, the, the first um, uh, notice of the lockdown happened on the Thursday afternoon before the Monday of the start of semester. Oh. <laughs> oh, so, so, hard. so everybody turned on the heels, but it was really interesting. It's, it's, it. it, 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 it there's a whole lot of different ways to approach that story, but one of the ways to approach that story is just how amazing people are at um, being flexible and learning, you know. They're just like if, if we want to look at brain elasticity, you know, people were able to just go back into that headspace. As far yeah. as the admin and just setting themselves up at home for a quick turnaround like that, was quite phenomenal. It doesn't mean it was easy, but um, it was quite phenomenal. Yeah, some small advantage was all being
2: set up with cameras on our um, computers and knowing how to use Zoom and that sort of stuff. But not that I <coughs> really know <it. laughs> (laughs) Even now, after all this time, it's pathetic. But there we are. Now, in a moment, dear listener, I'm going to tell you about a very simple test that you can do at home that just involves looking at your hand and that could actually save your life. (laughs) Sounds dramatic? That's because it is. (laughs) That'll be coming up in the news segment in just a minute. Um, Now, Miss Miss D, I want you to tell us what premenstrual dysphoric disorder is. (laughs)
3: <laughs> what we did what is is it? <laughs> Well, look. I think we're probably going to have some more expert evidence on this a bit later. But my understanding of premenstrual dysphoric disorder is it's it's like a really extreme version of PMS.
2: Yes. So it's what used to be called PMT, isn't it? It affects a huge number of young women, and can in turn, of course, affect others around them. Um, and frustrated at the lack of treatment options available, we have psychologist Sharon Muir coming on the show. She's developed an app that's a full-on treatment program. So, Miss D, I'm sure you'll have lots of questions for her. We'll be talking to Sharon after the news catch-up. Later in the show, anyone with diabetes will know the prejudices and misunderstandings that surround the disease. So, Diabetes Australia has just commissioned a new survey, the results of which actually amazed me. I think they will you too. So, we'll be talking to Renza Scabilia, a spokesperson for Diabetes Australia, in the second half of the show. But first, we have some News.
3: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
2: For those of you hanging on by a thread wondering what this life-saving tip is that you can have, um, first I'm going to ask Diagnosis just to very briefly explain what is an aortic aneurysm and why does it matter?
3: So your aorta is the big vessel that carries blood from your heart to the rest of your body. And an aneurysm essentially is a stretching of that big vessel. So it's like if you're blowing up a balloon and you blow it too far, and if you blow it far enough, it can actually burst. Now, in a balloon, you know, a bit of a loud noise, not too much to worry about. In your aorta, (laughs) slightly more problematic. Yeah, going pop,
2: not so good. And one of the problems with aortic aneurysm is it's really hard to know it's there until something nasty happens. Now, there's a wonderful publication in the American Journal of Cardiology just a couple of weeks ago where they looked at people with aortic aneurysms and they found that a small group of them had a very simple sign which said you might be at risk. And so now what I want you to do, dear listener, is just to take one of your hands and look at it. And now try and move your thumb across your palm. You're doing that as I speak? When you move your thumb across your palm, for most of us, the thumb cannot reach past the far edge of our palm, and that's what we call normal. Now, if your thumb projects a long way past the edge of your palm, past where your pinky is, then you may have what's called a connective tissue disorder that puts you at risk of an aortic aneurysm. The reason this is important is because if anyone at home is doing this and they look at it and they say, oh, my goodness, my thumb goes way past where my pinky is, so it sticks out the other side. The other way you can do this is clench your fist with your thumb in the middle. And if your thumb pokes out from the other side of the fist, so just wrap your fingers round your thumb, and if your thumb pokes out the far side, that's the same deal. It means that you may have this connective tissue disorder. The reason this is important is if that happens, you actually need to go to your doctor and say... you know what, I could have a connective tissue disorder, I could be at risk of an aneurysm, I need to have an ultrasound, and it
0: could save your life. How about that? (laughs) How on earth was that correlation made in the first place? Yeah, great question, PB. Well, what these cardiologists
2: did, they'd known about this possible sign, uh, and it had been taught in medical schools, but no-one had ever studied it. So they took 305 patients who they were doing these scans on anyway. They looked at who had an aneurysm and who who didn't. And of the group of 60 or so who had an aneurysm, 98.5% of them had a positive thumb sign. (laughs) So it's highly specific. If your thumb sign is positive, you are seriously at high risk. Now, having a negative thumb sign does not rule it out. So the so-called sensitivity was only 7%. So it doesn't mean you're completely safe. if You haven't got it. It just means if you have, pop into your doctor. It's so simple, just look at home.
3: And the reason this kind of in some way sort of makes sense, Dr Nick, is because with these abdominal aortic aneurysms, it's things going a bit too stretchy when they shouldn't be stretchy. And if you think about it with your thumb, it's getting a bit too stretchy. Now that obviously that's a very simplistic sort of explanation. for It makes sense to me,
2: I can understand that.
3: (laughs) But if people are wondering why this might occur, it's, you know, if your thumb's going too far, it's because there's a bit too much stretch in some of your joints and ligaments and might be in your Um, and you in your uh, aorta as well
2: that's exactly right so the stretchiness in medical terms a connective tissue disorder there you go so keep in mind and if anyone listening to this has got a positive thumb sign let us know please i'd be fascinated to know and then follow it up Uh, misdiagnosis you had a bit of news for us as well
3: Yeah, yeah. So um, very interesting. I got a message from a friend of mine over the weekend saying, guess what? I can now get the Pfizer vaccine because I'm pregnant. Um, So new inclusion criteria for the Pfizer vaccine. So it's being rolled out through the different uh, stages. I think we're up to uh, 1B now at the moment, which does include uh, pregnant women of any stage of their pregnancy. Um, and the important thing with this is that they've found that women who are pregnant who contract COVID can have a much more severe disease uh, than otherwise. So uh, good news if you're looking to get your Pfizer vaccine. The other inclusion criteria are all uh, outlined on the website. There's quite, quite a few of them. Um, and if you've been contacted already, you're probably aware of it. But if not, you can pop onto the website and have a look and see who else is included.
0: And have you been fully vaccinated?
3: I have been fully vaccinated. What about you, Panel
0: Peter? Have you been done yet? I'm not fully. I got caught up. Do you remember that weekend? It was like a Sunday announcement. They came out and they said... uh Um, we're changing the rules on the AstraZeneca. Um, I was booked for the Monday following that Sunday. So I got mine cancelled and I'm having a hell of a job Mm. trying to fit back into the system now. The
2: problem with you is you're in that sort of youthful group. But you're kind of halfway between, aren't you? You
0: I never belong, Dr. Nick. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Uh, it's an interesting conundrum. I mean, we, we had vaccine clinics booked at my workplace, and when the first concerns about AZ came out, people cancelled in droves. Now we're doing 70, 80 people at a time without any difficulty at all. Um,
3: and, Dr. Nick, what do you think about the new rules about the no fault indemnity for GPs?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, can, you go ahead. <laughs> no, no, you uh, go ahead. I'm really <laughs> keen to know. Well, I actually felt really cross about this. And the thing I felt really cross about was the idea that any doctor was hesitant about dealing with vaccination on the basis of indemnity. Uh, the idea that the thing that was holding us up was, oh, dear, am I insured or not? I'm not going to in- mm-hmm. inject someone with this potentially pandemic releasing um, injection it uh, really made my blood boil um, all right so I mean I have indemnity cover anyway um, i don 't need the federal government to tell me I am or am not covered for goodness sake. Um, for the work that I do. That, that's why I pay my insurance mm. premium of many thousand dollars a year. But the idea that I would be hesitant about my medical practice because of an indemnity
0: cover um, was, I felt, felt frankly insulting. The, it occurs to me that it mightn't be just, you know, the, you know, the, the, Uh, the potential to be able to defend your suit against you. It actually, in the context of things like the rallies yesterday, um, there's a reputational matter at play, isn't there? So even if you're fine, you know, you make your decision and you you, you explain your decision and, and it goes away, on an administrative point of view. There's still that administrative issue that I'm sure a lot of G- – um, reputational issue that I'm sure a lot of GPs are considering. I think that's a very fair point. That's, and,
2: of course, it's no fun going yeah. to any form yeah. of medico-legal issue.
3: And, of course, Dr Nick, you're a relatively senior GP. You know, for people who are more junior mm. maybe have – only started working as a consultant the last sort of five years or so. It, it may be there may be more pressure with that. I'm thinking about my career trajectory, and you saying, you know, well, I, this is why I paid. And I would be, I'm, and I'm sitting here thinking, God, I wonder if that's how I'm going to feel in five It's certainly not how I feel at the moment. It,
2: it, it interests me. We've had a lot of younger people under the age of 40 coming to us asking for the A Z vaccine, and we have to do a different consent process, advise them what the risks are, and every single person I've said to them, um, I just need you to tell me what's the reason why have decided to choose to have the AZ vaccine and every single one has just looked at me and gone, duh, pandemic, <laughs> 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 which I thought was a rather wonderful response. And, and these are people who realise they're probably more at risk of getting in the car and driving to come mm-hmm. for the vaccine than they are from the vaccine itself.
3: i, I just realised we probably should explain what the no-fault indemnity is for people who aren't aware. Go ahead. Uh, so, so this is the fact that um, if, you, if there, a patient has an adverse outcome from the vaccine itself, Um, They are entitled to compensation from the federal government, but the doctor who has administered or advised about the vaccine is not the one who will be taken to court. Is that right?
2: Yeah, and I have absolutely no problem about people being compensated if harm comes from a medical procedure, which is part of the community good. so.
3: So it's not that there is no compensation if something goes wrong, it's that it comes from the government, not from the doctor themselves.
0: I was just going to say, apropos a different health environment altogether, people might be binging on Dr. Death. Have you, have you caught that on uh, Stan?
3: I can't watch any medical TV shows. <laughs> I can't do it. It makes me feel like I'm at work. I sit there going, oh, they didn't do this. That's not how they do that. They didn't wash their hands. He's
0: a, he's a surgeon that goes feral on people's back operations. Oh, my. Oh, no. Based That's on a really... true story. Is oh. that right? Oh, dear. I mean, a... They're a bit feral in the first so... place. <laughs>
2: Oh, it sounds a little bit close to home. We'll, we'll come back to Stan and Dr. Death another time. Anyway, that's been the news. Shortly, we'll be talking with psychologist Sharon Muir. If you or anyone you have ever known has been plagued by premenstrual dysphoric disorder, you will not want to miss this. So stay tuned to 102.73 Triple R.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website rrr.org.au.
2: Uh, and on the line now, we have Sharon Muir from Diabetes, uh, from uh, for, uh, Sharon Muir, psychologist. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How's it, how about that for an intro, Sharon? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my apologies. Let's get that right. We'll start again. This is Sharon Muir, psychologist. Um, and Sharon specializes in premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, And Sharon, just start off before we go any further with that. Just tell us who you are, where you work, and why you specialize in this particular area.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder is a condition that I specialize in um, due to the fact that I have had lived experience. So this is a condition that ends at menopause, and I'm post-menopause now, um, so I no longer suffer from it. Um, however, I did, and so now I'm quite passionate about treating it and um, spreading the word, basically. So, um, I'll give you a definition of of PMDD. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I practice in Melbourne, face to face with clients with this condition. So, PMDD is a the definition I like to use is um, an acute onset mini-episode of severe depression every month. However, with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, you'll notice dysphoria is in the definition. So it is considered a depressive disorder um, or a mood disorder, um, officially, with the DSM, our diagnostic manual. However, dysphoria is um, broader than that. It's, It's a more global condition than just depression for the woman. So dysphoria is the opposite of euphoria, Mm -hmm. Um, so more than depression. So the woman is often sad, irritable, um, angry, can be anxious, flipping into rages, paranoid, super, super sensitive um, interpersonally, extraordinary levels of fatigue, debilitating body soreness, um, and suicidal attempts are about 30%. um in this condition so we're talking extraordinarily unwell in what we call the luteal phase which is the lead up to a monthly bleed
2: and this of course is something which is often seen as a bit of almost a joke that people have oh you know that's the time of the month and that sort of thing but the way you're describing it it's certainly no joke is it
4: oh no 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 it's a serious clinical condition um so unfortunately you know people think it's premenstrual tension. Um, PMT, because historically that's what people have known of, which is not a clinical dish- condition at all. Um, I sometimes say with my clients, you know, PMT is like a walk in the park <laughs> compared to premenstrual dysphoric disorder.
3: And Sharon, what kind of numbers of women are suffering from this condition? Yeah, so officially
4: according to DSM, that's our diagnostical manual, where it was um, listed for the first time in DSM-5, 2014, they quote three to five percent. However, lots of credible sources beyond that are saying it's more like eight to 10 percent.
3: That's a huge number
4: Yeah, women. yeah, it's huge, it's huge. Um, so if it was, you know, three percent, I think I worked out it was like, I don't know, 750,000 women, but we're really talking millions I- in Australia.
3: Mm. And, you know, sort of as women, we're quite used to our uh, medical conditions being uh, sort of dismissed sometimes. Yep. For women who suffer from PMDD, yep. what's the average time to diagnosis? How many other things do they have to go through before actually arriving at this diagnosis?
4: Oh, years. Okay, so um, very few people have heard of the condition um, in the general population, Um, unfortunately even um, in the medical community a lot of women present it's not suggested Um, they're not diagnosed often till late in their journey Mm. so for me for example um, I was 37 38 when I was diagnosed Mm. Um, and this is a chronic condition in the sense it's chronic until menopause so Mm. The window of vulnerability. So there's lots of windows of vulnerability with this particular condition, um, but the extensive one is onset in puberty when the uh, woman starts to menstruate, mm. and then um, ending at at um, menopause. So to be honest, most women that come into my clinic are heading for perimenopause when they come in um,
3: for treatment. That's a, you know it's a huge amount of their life yeah. these women would have suffered for huge huge and is it am i right in saying it's it's the the way that you diagnose it is it's these symptoms but they happen every month before the period and then exactly. resolve afterwards
4: yeah so um, upon bleeding the woman is well mm. so with on the first day of bleed for some women or second or third mm. um it's like a light switch um has slipped and she's completely well so, And she's completely well until ovulation, which is um, when the luteal phase or the, um, the phase of PMDD commences again.
2: And, and can I just ask, do we know why the change in hormones has such a profound effect on some women
4: absolutely yeah so it's all theory at the moment there's an absolute dearth of research in this area um which is one of the reasons why i'm wanting to get the word out and and a number of my colleagues um we believe, and there's a couple of pretty convincing pieces of evidence for this, that women uh, with PMDD, unlike those that don't have it, have an acute sensitivity to allopregnanolone. So allopregnanolone is the metabolite or the byproduct Of progesterone um and that's in quite high levels in the follicular uh sorry the luteal phase of the month so for some reason and there's theories around this as well for some reason pmdd women's uh, brains are exquisitely sensitive to this allopregnenolone now that's paradoxical because allopregnenolone for non-pmdd women or others is a calming has a calming effect on the person
2: Now, I, I want to get on to your app in a minute because that's just sure. fascinating. But before we yep. get to the app, you've described some really significant problems that women experience. Who who are the right health professionals to help women in this situation? Yeah,
4: that's a great question. So... PMDD is a real intersection between a number of um, professions, so endocrinology is one of them, Mm -hmm. because of the hormones, so with PMDD um, there's nothing wrong with women's hormones, they're not imbalanced or or whatever, it's a sensitivity to them in the brain.
2: That's a really important point to emphasise. Really, really
4: important. This is not a problem below the belt. (laughs) This is not gynecological. This is a mental health condition. This is a a condition in the brain, the woman's brain. We call it vulnerable brain syndrome. She's very, very, very sensitive. So endocrinology is one, Mm -hmm. and especially endocrinology, where the endocrinologist has a particular interest in the relationship between women's reproductive hormones and their mental health. Because not all have. Some do diabetes and other things. Some women, uh, some though endocrinologists have particular interest in this area. So they're really important. And then um, the medical profession um, for the psychopharmacology. So that could be a GP, that could be a psychiatrist, because for some women they respond favourably to... um, medication and then there's also psychology for the psychological um treatment side of it so it's a real intersection
3: can i just can i ask one more question just before sure, we go on to the you. app i was just fascinated about this but so you say medication i assume you're talking um about either um a, sort of a medication for anxiety and depression or hormonal replacement is that right
4: So more specifically, um, again, a huge dearth of research, um, but we do know that some antidepressants Mm -hmm. such as um, SSRIs, Mm -hmm. SSRIs, um, the first one that was evidence-based was Prozac, Mm -hmm. and there's a few few others now. So for about 50 to 70% of women, they have a favorable response, which is absolutely brilliant.
3: it's an interesting treatment, that one, because typically... They, yeah, they, I mean, they're not, you know, they're not depressed. They've got no, PMDD. The inter- okay. So typically with antidepressants, um, it can take a couple of weeks, four mm. weeks, six
4: weeks mm. to fully kick in. With PMDD, it kicks in within 36 hours. Wow. And what we think is going on is it's interfering or it's interrupting the progesterone turning into allopregnanolone. Yeah. So for some women, it's it's just bingo. They've, they're really fortunate and it really
3: helps. And do they the have to take one, it all the time or, can they, or do
4: they okay. just take it pre yeah. So there's two modes of therapy. There's continuous and there is um, women just taking it in the luteal phase, so 14 days. It really depends on the woman. She needs to speak to, um, you know, whoever's providing it carefully for that because some women can take it only in the luteal phase, but some women, their brain is sensitive. So it's sensitive to a number of things. It's sensitive to the pregnenolone. It's sensitive to hormone fluctuations. Um, she may be also sensitive to going on-off. So, um, yes,
2: I'll just let listeners know that um, we're talking online on the telephone with Sharon Muir, who's a psychologist who specializes in premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking about some of the medical aspects of it. But Sharon's a psychologist. That's her area. Um, And Sharon, I gather there aren't too many psychologists who work in the field, which is one of the reasons you've developed this app.
4: Absolutely. So, um, yeah, there aren't. <laughs> so many people haven't heard of it, and they definitely don't treat it, including some of my really esteemed psychologists. have um, never heard of it. Um, so I developed an app because I'm the only psychologist in Australia
2: that specialises in it. it oh, um, it, do, what? Say that again. You're the only psychologist in yeah. Australia who specialises yeah. in PMDD. I mean, more than yeah. half yeah. the psychologists I know are women. What, what are they up to? I know. You tell
4: me. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, I'd love to be proven wrong. I'd love to be proven wrong today. Um, I'd love to hear of people out there that are specialising in it. You know, that would be amazing. That would be wonderful. Um, but I haven't come across them enough searched. But that's so, a bit scary,
2: isn't it, for the woman yeah. who's looking for psychological help to yeah. know that there's not too, really many, too many who specialise in the area. So tell yeah. us about the app then.
4: Yeah. So basically I developed an app that was a winter 2020 COVID project that sort of blew out <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> essentially um, this app PMDD Treatment is exactly what I do in my face-to-face therapy with my PMDD women um, so it's a app that is essentially an ebook. Um, with 20 um, odd videos of me delivering skills okay. so in the app I use an approach called DBT, dialectical behaviour therapy mm-hmm. um, and this is not an empirically based um, therapy for PMDD because nothing is to date however some many of the symptoms of the PMDD episode parallel um, some of the symptoms in a condition, borderline personality disorder or complex PTSD that um, responds extremely well to um, DBT.
2: And I should clarify for listeners that DBT dialectical behaviour therapy is a well established form of psychological well, exactly. therapy this is not something Sharon just invented oh, right? God, no, <laughs> oh, God,
1: no, this is, God, no, 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 this is, really. is long evidence
4: based sta- yeah. yeah. powerful evidence powerful yeah. therapy it's a big therapy um so the app is quite comprehensive but it's very skills based so central to the app and DBT is um, skills in emotional regulation and distress tolerance um because this is what women with PMDD are really needing they've got smooth emotions so they're needing skills in how to tolerate that and then how to regulate that
3: yeah. And, and for such a complex, uh, complex illness, it seems um, oh, it seems tricky to sort of, in some ways, like I understand that this app probably gives women fantastic coping skills, but apart from coping skills, what else can women do? Because to sort of say, you know, you just need to tolerate it and learn how to get on with it, does mm. seem like it's um, a bit of a short straw for us with a womb.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. So the medical treatments are really valid, really valid. So the, the um, SSRIs or... Unfortunately, and sadly, there's only one contraceptive pill in um, Australia that we, we use effectively. It's called Zoli, Z-O-E-L-Y, mm. um, and that's um, because it suppresses ovulation, um, and after suppressing ovulation, which stops also the rise and fall of the hormones, it adds back a, um, a really nice, gentle progesterone. So that, for a lot of women, is highly effective. So medical treatments are definitely worth pursuing. But also um, reading about it, mm. tracking mm-hmm. symptoms, sharing it with partners, family, friendships, um, rather than shamed and, um, you know, not sort of sharing it and speaking about it is absolutely important.
2: And one of, the things that, one of the things people listening might be a little bit sceptical about is how effective psychological treatment can be through an app. But one of the benefits of things like CBT and DBT is they can be what's called so-called manualized, which it sounds as though that's what you've done. And, and to be able to get that kind of help, particularly with some videos um, and written and audio, I would imagine that could be extremely helpful for people. How long has the app been available, Sharon?
4: So it's available on Apple and Android. It's only been available for a couple of months and the feedback is brilliant. Um, One of the things I'll speak to about that is women that buy the app, once they've gone through it, um, there's an email address inside the app um, for women to contact me. And then after I get feedback, questions, need for clarification and all that, I'll post um, videos on my YouTube channel, which is PMDD Sisterhood, Sort of on a regular basis, so I can sort of build a community of us working through a lot of this
2: stuff together. Okay, so it's evolving.
4: Evolving, uh, yes. Evolving.
2: Okay, so so your app is called PMDD Treatment, is that correct? Yep. That's right. And it's available for all forms: Android, iPhone, that sort of thing. And and where can people download it from?
4: So just go to their App Store. It's the only tri- PMDD treatment app, so it's standalone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so if they just type in PMDD, they're not going to be flooded with a, a dozen different options.
4: No. They'll have options for um, period trackers
2: uh-huh. that
4: track their cycle, but nothing at There's no other treatment one, so it's pretty easy to find.
2: Yeah, um, Sharon's Thank you so much for coming on, and congratulations on creating the app. That was your COVID 2020 lockdown project. Well done, Sharon. <laughs> what are you going to you do so in, What have you done in this last lockdown? Have you to, 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 written a whole YouTube series or something?
4: This time, no, no, something, uh,
2: this time I've escaped the country, actually. I'm <laughs> up in the country and um, doing lots of nature walks. <laughs> well, well done. Um, what we'll do is we'll keep tabs on this and maybe down the track when you've had some more experience, we'll get you back on and hear how it's going. That was Sharon Thank you very much for joining us, Sharon. You're very welcome. Thank you. Uh, great stuff. Now, after the break, we'll be talking with Renza Scabilia from Diabetes Australia.
0: This is a podcast from Triple R. An independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
2: On the phone, we have from Diabetes Australia, Renza Scabilia. Good morning, Renza.
1: Good
2: morning, how are you all? We're terrific in the studio here and thank you very much for joining us this morning. Um, Before we talk about the research released by Diabetes Australia, just tell us who you are and what your role is with them.
1: Absolutely. So I'm Renza Shebillia. I'm a spokesperson at um, Diabetes Australia. My day job is to be the manager of type 1 diabetes and communities. So I am not a health professional, but I'm all about ensuring that we are listening very closely to the voice of people living with diabetes. And I count myself amongst those people.
2: Oh, what, because you've just ch- chosen to have diabetes, what do you mean?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 23 years ago, so I am in counted amongst all the people in australia living with diabetes 23
2: years that's a long time to have diabetes isn't it um, ha- how's it been from your perspective
1: oh look i reckon it's a long time too uh, it, i would say it's never a walk in the park mm-hmm. it's very challenging and it's very constant that is what all types of diabetes are it is a you know it, it's it's always in your back in the back of your mind but a lot of the time in the front of your mind as well. So uh, I guess that's probably one of the reasons why I think that this campaign this year has been so important because it's really to highlight some of the mental health struggles that people living with diabetes might experience.
2: So we might talk more about diabetes and your personal experience in a moment, but let's talk about sure. the ca- let's talk about the campaign. Um, what is the campaign and what's uh, tell us about the research that's come out recently?
1: Sure. So the campaign is all about diabetes-related stigma. So what we mm. know is that eighty um, percent of people living with diabetes um, experience some form of stigma related to their
2: condition. And I'm going to stop so you, we... to stop you yes. right there, sorry to interrupt, because sure. that was one of the figures that really rocked my socks, because yeah. I see a lot of patients with diabetes, as do most doctors, um, and I, I honestly can't say that too many of them seem to be bowed under the weight of community stigma, so 80% seem to me extraordinarily high.
1: It's really interesting because when we talk about stigma and the impacts of it and what it can be, when you're sitting in a doctor's office, I don't reckon in the 23 years that I have gone to visit an endocrinologist who is the primary doctor who treats my diabetes um, or my GP, I have ever mentioned diabetes stigma with them. It's absolutely just, you know, I'm there to talk about my glucose levels, you know, anything that's been going a bit weird, just the frustrations of diabetes perhaps. But I never sit in there and say, you know, I feel so stigmatised by this condition. So I think that one of the things that we've done with this campaign is actually give space to people to have that conversation about, you know, just, just how, how, I guess, common it is for people with diabetes to feel that there is such a misunderstanding there are so many misconceptions about diabetes and that it is such a stigmatized condition
2: so i interrupted you at the 80 would you like to just give us some more of the data that came from this recent research
1: yeah sure and i will just say i you know i mean that is a staggering figure so I, you know i mean i think that It is something that we uh, you know, that that I don't know necessarily that it surprised us all that much because we hear it all the time working in a diabetes organisation but a lot of people have also said that, that they have you know, that they were quite surprised at just um, how far reaching it is. But some other things, 20% of people say that they've been discriminated against in the workplace because they have type 1 diabetes so workplace discrimination often comes from this stigma, people don't understand what it is and so the way then they treat people living with the condition can Be quite discriminatory. Um, Also, with type 1 diabetes, 55% said that. that others assume that it's their fault that they have diabetes because they ate too much sugar. So that's just some data in the type 1 community. And then in the Mm. type 2 community, 26% said that they've been told that they brought their type 2 diabetes on themselves, which is just awful when you think about it. You're living with a a health condition that is very serious, very complex, and at the same time as trying to manage that and learn to live with that, you've got people pointing their fingers and saying you brought it on yourself, which I think is, is pretty terrible. Um, and something that, you know, I think that we really need to talk about there and, and, and I guess unpack why people think that and how we can go about changing those perceptions.
0: Renza, it's a Panel Beta here. I'm really fascinated by this research. I think there's so much, uh, so many different stories to tell about diabetes in the community. If I've got the yeah. figures right, we've got about 2 million Australians with diabetes of one type or another. Is that about right?
1: That's right. So we have about 1.4 million who are registered on our National Diabetes um, Scheme. Um, But there are probably about another 500,000 who are living with undiagnosed type 2 diabetes. So they're walking around, they have it, but they don't know yet. And that... We know that with type 2 diabetes, people can go for up to seven years of living with type 2 diabetes and it not being diagnosed. So you're right when you say about 2 million.
0: So that's almost like one in every dozen of us has diabetes of some type or another. That suggests that most of us know at least one other person with diabetes and, you know, at least the family members of the people with diabetes. So who are these people who are casting stigma?
1: Well, sometimes, unfortunately, it is those family members. You know, we hear, um, we we do hear that, but it comes from everywhere. So I guess the the main areas that we really identified when we surveyed people was it comes from the media. So that's certainly one place, and we, we'll talk a little bit more about that maybe soon. Unfortunately, it comes from our healthcare professionals. Which is really devastating when you think that these are the people tasked with um, helping us, you know, navigate our way through diabetes, who can often um, be, be quite stigmatising. It comes from the general community, um, but it also does come from family and friends as well. And you know, I think that often it's really interesting because when you and I, I know I've done this. I've sort of said to people when they've said something, you know, that's quite stigmatising, and they're horrified. They don't. I don't think that in a lot of cases people genuinely intend to be harmful or hurtful. And when it's explained to them, they are quite upset and horrified <laughs> that they have done that. Um, but but sometimes you just can't be bothered having that conversation either. So it's a bit of a tough conversation to have with you know, with your mum or with your partner if they've said something that you feel is quite hurtful. So um, Mm. it does seem to be coming from a lot of different angles.
0: Maybe you could flesh that out a little bit for us. Because as somebody who doesn't live with diabetes, um, I might be guilty of unconsciously casting stigma. So um, you've mentioned somebody might just say something flippantly. What what Mm. other things... How would we recognise stigma and shame if we bumped into it?
1: You know what? A really good way of thinking about it is... If you're saying something about diabetes, would you say it to somebody with a different health condition? Um, because that's one of the things that's really interesting is that if you look at how diabetes is spoken about... So let's just talk for a minute. I'm going to just, just think of any cooking show, TV show that you can. Whether or not you've watched them, you've probably heard this, you know, throwaway line. Someone makes an absolutely delectable dessert and they bring it up to the judges and the judges say, that looks amazing, it's diabetes on a plate. Uh-huh. right because okay. it's got sugar in it it's got a bit of fat in it obviously you know now nobody There's the thing about that is is we just think that that's a joke we think it's just you know toughen up it's a it's, it doesn't mean anything but actually it does because you know then it's the kid with diabetes running around the playground and somebody goes to share things with them and they're, oh you can't have that because you've got diabetes it's somebody you know sitting at lunch and it's Somebody's birthday, and everybody's bought a. Someone's bought a cake, and they cut up Oh, you can't be eating that. So it, I know that sometimes the people, and even for some of us living with diabetes, I think sometimes we think, let's just toughen up a bit. But actually, when this is happening all the time, it actually does become quite relentless. Um, and also, it just feeds into that constant idea that this is something that we brought on ourselves.
2: And can I can I push Panel Peter's question just a little bit further? Because yep. um, I, I, I'm not going to apologise at all for those um, <laughs> commercial channel cooking shows. But when it comes down <laughs> to French, When it comes down to friends and relatives who maybe make casual comments that they don't know, because you've said sometimes people say, oh, I haven't realized and so on. I think it would really help listeners to know. It would help me to know. What are the sorts of things that you've been told by people which people hadn't realized felt stigmatizing to you?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think one of the things, and, you know, I can certainly talk about my experience, but I always bring in what other people say as well. Yeah. So it is things like, you know, if you're, um, for example, diagnosed with a diabetes-related complication, and unfortunately complications of diabetes do happen to people living with diabetes, oh, well, that's because you didn't look after yourself. Um, you know, it, that, that's one that, that people say that they very, very frequently hear is, you know, that you should have looked after yourself better. Um, Also, you know, diabetes comes with a lot of different tasks, okay? So for a lot of people with diabetes, uh, they're checking their glucose levels, which for a lot of people involves pricking your finger and there's a bit of blood and um, people don't like that. Can you go do that away from me? Mm -hmm. And it's... um, really, yes, really I've been asked in a cafe do that quietly in
2: another room while you're breastfeeding (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's right yes, that's right and I kind of, you know, you have to I, I use an insulin pump now so it's all, you know, very automated for me but a lot of people, most people who take insulin and that's Everybody with type 1 diabetes and a lot of people with type 2 diabetes as well um, require insulin, so you have to give yourself an, I don't like needles. And I'm telling you now, I don't know too many people who delight in having to stab themselves because they need insulin, Um, but, you know, and I always thought about that because I did did have people ask me to go and do that in another room, you know, could you go to the bathroom to do that? I
2: I am just so astonished to hear that, but wow.
1: So here's another thing that's really fascinating is when we were putting together this campaign and we had all of these comments coming in from people and we, we of course, you know, the, the campaign was co-designed with people with diabetes and then we were sending it out for people to review and come back to us. And people with diabetes were sitting there nodding their heads and going, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, that's <laughs> happened to me. And people who don't have diabetes are saying, this doesn't really happen, does it? This seems horrible. I'm like, yeah, it really does happen. It's it does happen so there's a, this disconnect as well between what people with diabetes are saying and reporting and, and people who don't have diabetes saying i can't believe that this is happening oh, you need to listen to us it is happening
3: and obviously we're having a chuckle about the absurd, absurdity of it on the air at the yes. moment but what what is this like for people living with it because it's not something that takes a public holiday diabetes it doesn't have a weekend off it's there 24 7 pretty much for the rest of your life What's it like yep. living with this with this stigma? What what impact does it have on people with diabetes?
1: Yeah, so that point that you just made there is really critical. Diabetes doesn't take a holiday. You can't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm not doing diabetes today. I'll pick it up again tomorrow. It just doesn't work that way. Um, but it. it the way that people feel and, or I guess react if they're feeling stigmatized can actually be quite, um, can be very harmful to the individual living with diabetes. Mm-hmm. So, for some people, especially, so they've felt that they've been really judged or um, shamed by a healthcare professional, it might mean that they don't go back to see that doctor or any other doctor. So, that, that becomes something as well is people just say, I know I need to be keeping in regular contact with a healthcare professional about my chronic health condition, but every time I go there, I feel that I'm not doing enough. They are shaming me. They are blaming me when things are on. They're telling me that I'm, you know, non-compliant, and that's a term that just... It is like nails down the chalkboard. Um, and so they just don't go back, and you, you can't blame them. Like, would you voluntarily go back and put yourself in a situation every six weeks or every three months or whatever, if you knew that the outcome was going to be you walking out of that um, that consultation feeling really distressed and that's how a lot of people have reported feeling. Um, also, uh, people hide it. So we spoke to people who had never um, told anyone in their workplace that they had diabetes. Now that's fine, you don't need to disclose. It is completely up to the individual as to whether or not you disclose your diabetes to other, others. But he specifically said he didn't want to disclose because he was afraid of the discrimination that he might face. Um, and that, you know, he just didn't want to have to deal with with the with the questions that are often actually not questions. They're, you know, these comments that, that, that people have that, that come because of the misconceptions that people have around diabetes.
2: So I want to ask you more about discrimination in the workplace in a second. I just want mm-hmm. to remind people, Will, you're on uh, 3RRR Radiotherapy. You're listening to Renza Scabilia from Diabetes Australia talking about some new research looking at stigmatisation and one of the points you mentioned earlier, one of the piece of data you gave us was that around about 20% of people with diabetes talked about being discriminated against in the workplace. What form does that discrimination take? What sort of thing are they experiencing?
1: Yeah so one example we spoke to this wonderful woman as part of our media launch for this campaign Joanna and she was talking about um, how she was looked over for um, promotions in her workplace. Um, So she had had a, a um, an instance at work where she um, had low blood sugar um, and she, you know, needed some assistance with that. And because of that, moving forward, she wasn't considered for um, for any promotions or advancements in her career. There was sort of this concern and worry that, um, that, that she wouldn't be able to do it, even though she was kicking goals and she was achieving everything that she needed to and was excelling at what she needed to be doing. Um, so that's one of the stories that we hear. Uh, That was one of the stories that we heard. Um, But, you know, for every one story, there are many others. Um, We also hear about people, um, you know, perhaps not being given opportunities such as when we used to be allowed to travel um you know they were they were always looked over for any opportunities that that may have put them in um you know a situation that that people were afraid that something might go wrong so whether that that was you know going on a a work trip or going to a conference or something and that they were they were always excluded from those sorts of activities and you know then we see it in with kids as well so we hear of um, kids not being invited to birthday parties or to sleepovers um, because um, other families are really worried that um, that you know something is going to happen and, and that they won't be able to manage, mm-hmm. um, and and that's you know that's really tough for a little kid living with diabetes is to be excluded when there is absolutely no need for that that to be the case. Um, But that's something that we hear quite a lot from kids and also from their parents.
2: And are there examples of the sorts of things in the workplace that work colleagues are saying, that sort of casual discrimination where people don't even realise that they're saying things that to the person with diabetes feels
0: inappropriate?
1: Well, there's a lot around, you know, assumptions around what diabetes is. So there's, you know, that you brought it on yourself sort of, I guess, thread that, that Um, is through things. So people assume that perhaps if somebody is overweight, that that is the reason that they have diabetes. Um, That because they, you know, one day may have joined in and eaten a cupcake at lunchtime, ah, Mm -hmm. well obviously they're not taking care of themselves. Uh That's a really big one that we hear. You're not looking after yourself properly. Um, And, you know, everybody manages their diabetes in a way that works for them and they're probably doing the very best they can in that Moment, and it's and as we discussed earlier, it's this constant thing, it never sort of ends. Um, so it's those sorts of comments and those assumptions that people have about diabetes that are frequently wrong. You know, I am able to eat a cupcake if I want, I can give myself insulin for it, so I understand how that works. And yes. you know, I don't really need, and I'm an adult, I really don't need somebody telling me what I can and can't be eating.
0: That'll do it. Yeah, Renza, um, we're running close to time, so I've got a real general question that we heard you say at the start that you've been living with diabetes since your diagnosis 23 years ago. Did I hear that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Tell us about the changes over the 23 years. Is there optimism to draw from the changes? Well, I'm thinking about the workplace, and the one obvious thing is that whenever there's going to be some catering, the message comes around, let us know if you've got any dietary requirements and so on. There's at least that positive little thing going around. Can um, Can you encourage us with some of the other positive things that, and change that you've seen, either in your treatment and the, and the support you get living with it, um, and more socially?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, look, there have been so many advancements in the last 23 years when we come to um, looking at technologies, when we look at different insulins. Um, I use a... It's going to sound quite weird, but I tell people that I built my own pancreas. I use a a system that I basically cobbled together from um, regulated uh, diabetes technologies and I use an open source app that I built to automate my <laughs> insulin delivery, and I just will appeal to you to run a show on this because it's fascinating like this DIY uh, Nothing um, like a homegrown
2: pancreas, I love it
1: Exactly, that is exactly what I use, and and that has, I've been using that now for close to four years, and that has been the best thing that I've ever done when it comes to my own diabetes, because of um, just in terms of reducing the burden of living with diabetes. So, those technologies are amazing. The user-led technologies are remarkable because they're being done by people who are living it and who really get it. So that's you know that that's something quite amazing. But I think more broadly, having these conversations about diabetes, understanding that diabetes isn't a simple equation of um, you know what you eat, the insulin or other medications that you take checking your glucose levels, but there is this, um, certainly there is this mental health um, part of it that is really significant. And that's, I guess, part of the message of of this campaign is, please, you know, think about how people are feeling. Um, remember that no one chooses diabetes and I think that's a really important one. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, gosh, I hope I get diabetes today. No one in the history of diabetes has ever said that. No. Um, and, and having a and bit Ren- of kindness and uh, compassion. And
2: I'm sorry to cut you off, Renza, but time is upon us and, and a reminder for what Renza said earlier. About half a million people wandering around have diabetes, don't yet know it. So one, okay. of, the, one of the strongest predictors of diabetes is family history, so get a regular sugar test get your gp to check it from time to time um, because diabetes is really common and it's even more common than people realize um it's just time for us to say thank you to our phone in guests so psychologist sharon neo creator of the wonderful new PMDD app. And that was Renzo Scabilia from Diabetes Australia. Uh, also a huge thank you to my studio companion, Miss Diagnosis. As always, indebted thanks to Panel Beta for piercing insights and making everything work so smoothly. I've been Dr. Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast.